John chapter 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. The title of this sermon is Jesus, the God who sees and knows. Since we just finished the book of Mark and are going to be jumping into the book of Ephesians in the new year, it'll probably be a while before we're back in a gospel. So I thought we'd do one last sermon for the year out of the book of John. Just to give you kind of an overview to catch you up to where we are in the book of John. Uh, In John chapters 1 through 4, there's reservation or hesitancy with respect to Jesus. But chapters 5 through 7 move to outright calculated opposition and even persecution. This passage that we just read is an amazing passage about Jesus healing a man beside a pool called Bethesda. But it might not be about what we think it is. Jesus certainly does a miracle, but the point of the passage is about something far greater and far more important than miracles. So let's jump in. John lays out for us the setting where all of this is happening in verses 1 and 2. He says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Back all the way in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17, it says this. It says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, 
at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So, according to Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, God's people were commanded to attend these feasts. We don't know which one this particular one was, but Jesus is attending it in Jerusalem. And I think we forget this sometimes. Jesus was fully Jewish. And even though, as we'll see, the Jewish religious system was completely corrupt and broken, there were certain laws that they were keeping rightly. Jesus obeys too by going to this feast. These feasts were commanded. Why? Well, because it reminded them of who God was and what he had done for them in bringing them out of slavery and into rest. In fact, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover, was the meal that Jesus reinterpreted in instituting the Lord's Supper. So, that's why he's here in Jerusalem, out of obedience to the Father's commands. Then, John mentions the place. He says it's by the Sheep Gate. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, mentions the building of this Sheep Gate. And it was a place near the temple where sheep were housed, being prepared for sacrifice. Interesting place for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to be going, right? This shouldn't be lost on us. Next, John tells us that next to this sheep gate is a pool called Bethesda. This word Bethesda means house of mercy which, again, should clue us in to what's about to happen. Now, verse 3 tells us something significant that may raise a philosophical issue for some. It says this. It says, In these lay a multitude of invalids. Do you see that? In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. We'll come back to this later, but for now, I want you to clearly understand that this guy who Jesus healed wasn't the only one at the pool. There were multitudes, a crowd, and Jesus only heals one of them. We've got to sit with that and wrestle with it. Jesus clearly has the power and capability to heal all of them he doesn't. I'll get to why I think this is the case later, but we should see this and ask the why question at least. So we've got our setting and our actual story starts in verse five. Now, many of you who are paying attention to detail are now probably asking, wait, you skipped from verse three to verse five. And apparently, Our versions of the Bible did too. What's going on there? Great question. Well, without going into extreme detail about textual criticism like we did with the end of Mark, you should know that none of our earliest manuscripts contain verse 4, which says this, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, 
Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Later manuscripts include what's called a textual gloss. So think of it as kind of a marginal note um, as to what a scribe included at one point to try to explain what the man says in verse 7 that we'll read here in just a little bit. So somewhere, someone took that marginal note and actually put it in the text, and it got copied in a handful of manuscripts going forward. With pretty good certainty, we can say that verse 4 was not written by John and shouldn't be included in our text. It wasn't included in any manuscripts prior to the 4th century. So, two quick points here before moving on. Number one, uh, again, as with the end of the book of Mark, I don't share this to decrease your faith in the text of Scripture. Uh, I say it to strengthen it. Uh, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is unbelievable and overwhelming. No historical document even comes close to the amount of textual evidence that the Bible has. Take, for example, the Peloponnesian Wars. Have you guys heard of that? Peloponnesian Wars. We only have three manuscripts that tell us about how they happened. And that's considered actually the gold standard of historical record. Three manuscripts. The New Testament has over 5,000 manuscripts that attest to its truth and its historicity. Using these 5,000 manuscripts, we're able, able to accurately get to what the original manuscript that John wrote said. And we believe that the text of Scripture is without error, that it can be trusted. Now, alongside this, it's important to note that these textual differences are few and far between, most of which have absolutely no doctrinal import. But what, I mean as, what I mean is that of the 5,000 manuscripts that we have, none of them disagree on who Jesus is or what Jesus did in atoning for sin. None of them have any variance on any major doctrine of Christianity. Second, verse 4 um, wasn't in the original manuscript, but it tells us a lot about what the people believed was happening there. Because this pool was probably fueled by a natural spring, it periodically teemed with life and bubbled up. The crowd of people believed that it was magical and somehow healed people. Many probably believed that an angel showed up to stir it. Here's what I want us to see. They were superstitious. So our story begins in verse 5. And it says this. It says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, Stop and think about that. 38 years. This man has been suffering for longer than I've been alive. He's been helpless and hopeless for a long period of time. When we read texts like this, we should feel a sense of hatred for sin. It was sin that brought sickness and brokenness into the world. We know this from Genesis 3. God didn't create man to be in this state. But here we are. 
We should view this man with absolute sadness and gut-wrenching compassion. When we see sickness like this, we should long for Christ's return. We often think about this at funerals, noting that in heaven we'll have new bodies and no more sickness, no more tears. But it's appropriate to consider that truth here and to long for it, to long for the coming kingdom of God and our ultimate glorification. Every time we see sickness, disability, suffering, we should be reminded of our hatred for sin. Even though sin isn't always the direct cause of these sicknesses, As Jesus makes clear in John chapter 9, sin is what brought brokenness into the world. And we should be reminded of that regularly. So in steps Jesus. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Two important verbs there. Jesus saw and knew. Saw and knew. These tell us something. And in the book of John, we've seen this before. So flip back to John chapter 1, verses 47 and 48. John 1, 47 and 48 says this. Look for these verbs. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So in John 1, Jesus sees where we are as God. Just like in Genesis 1 and 2. And God saw that it was good over and over and over and over again. God sees all things. And he sees with 2020 vision. There's no distortion, no blurriness in God's sight. His vision is flawless where ours is not. He sees things from all angles. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't just see us. He knows us. Inside and out. He knows who we are. At the core of our being. He knows our wants. And our needs. He sees us. And he knows us. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4 says this. O Lord, you have searched me. And known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isn't that a comfort this morning? The Lord of the universe knows you and knows about everything that's going on in your life. In a social media world where we long for everyone to see us and to know us, only with shallow results, 
Consider this. The one who created all things and spoke the world into existence knows you intimately and loves you. Without anyone telling him, Jesus knew this man had been there a long time. Again, this is a divine appointment. He knew everything about this man, just like he did with the woman at the well. And unlike the paralytic in Mark 2 that we read just a little bit ago, who's lowered through the roof in front of Jesus, Jesus actually seeks this man out. He picks this man out amongst all the other sick people. That's sovereign initiative here. Jesus chose to go to this pool on this day to heal this man. Further, this healing, it's unmerited. (laughs) Think about that. This guy didn't clean himself up before Christ healed him. Jesus took the initiative here. He went towards the mess. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This healing in our text isn't uh, based on this man's righteousness. It's based on Jesus' compassion, his grace, and his mercy. So see the compassion of Jesus here. Jesus has a heart. Don't miss this. He's not a, a cold and distant God. He knows your pain. He sees it. And the solution isn't always what we want, but it's not because he's unfeeling or callous or impotent in some way. He's compassionate and he gives us exactly what we need. He has our greatest good in mind, which is himself. That's our greatest good, is him. Psalm 86.15 says this, It says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Same thing in Psalm 111, 112, 145, over and over and over and over again. God is gracious, merciful, and compassionate. Jesus here has the same compassion, grace, and mercy that God has. Why? Because he's fully God. So, he asked this man a question. Do you want to be healed? What a question. He doesn't walk up and make small talk. Hey, man, beautiful day, isn't it? You okay? How about the 49ers lately? No. He asked if he wants to be healed. He goes to his greatest need immediately. He wants to see if this man has any hope left in the tank. He wants him to see that he's been without help for 38 years. Where's this man's will? Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So Jesus asks the question, do you want to be healed? I kind of picture this guy rolling his eyes at Jesus at this point, feeling like he's answering a dumb question. And then he responds, letting us know that he's actually bought into the empty superstition of those in his day. Here's the reality. No one cares about this man. No one sees him. No one even knows him. Even those of his invalid community step right over him to get to the churning waters. No one sees him and no one knows him. And remember, at this point, this man has no clue who Jesus is. He's still a complete stranger. This man has never known compassion from anyone. So Jesus responds. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. At once. See the immediacy of this healing. Jesus speaks and the creation obeys. Whether it's wind on waves or sickness. This is Jesus' sovereign power on absolute display. Words come from his mouth and bones obey. Cells are rearranged. This isn't just a good man. Jesus is all-powerful, and he's completely good. He's God in the flesh. I wonder, is there anything in your life that you don't trust that Jesus can do? What would it look like for us to, to trust that Jesus is fully and completely compassionate, good, and powerful? And that he sees you and knows you. Then there's this little unfortunate phrase at the end of verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Uh oh. If you're like me and you're not a huge fan of conflict, you're thinking, come on, Jesus. What in the world? You, you could have done this miracle on any other day of the week. But this wasn't by mistake. Jesus never does anything by mistake. He does this on the Sabbath on purpose. He brings about this conflict with Jewish leaders to make a point. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. It says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, what's going on here? Jeremiah 17, verses 21 and 22, says this. Jeremiah 17, verses 21 and 22. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. 
and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. What's actually being commanded here is that commerce isn't supposed to happen on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest from work. These Jewish leaders had taken this command from Jeremiah and made a list of 39 prohibited categories of work. They had made rules where God had not. One commentator notes that they had turned the Sabbath into the worst day of the week. It was the day of the most amount of bondage. This isn't righteousness. The Sabbath was meant to honor and to glorify God, not to lay burdens on people and build self-righteousness. That's the issue that, that Jesus is forcing to the forefront in this healing specifically. In their actions, they're distorting the character of God. So understand this. When you claim to speak on behalf of God or represent God, you represent the character of God to other people for good or for bad. As a parent, you represent God's good authority and love to your children. At work, you represent God's faithfulness and integrity to your co-workers and to your boss. As a Christian in general, you represent Christ to all that you come into uh, to contact with. That's why the sin of the man in 1 Corinthians 5, who bears the name of brother, is so egregious. He's living a life that lies about God. These Jewish leaders in John 5 are lying about God's character in how they're living and teaching others to live. And notice how little they care about this man himself. He gets healed, and they don't even care. All they care about is their moral code. That's all they're concerned about. Absolutely no compassion for the man. That's not the God of the Bible. He's concerned about his holiness. And he's also concerned about people. So much so that he sent his own son to die on a cross for sinners like you and like me. So Jesus heals this man who doesn't even know who he is. And then he disappears. Crazy, right? The text tells us that there's a crowd there. Most of us probably think like Jesus' brothers in John chapter 7. Jesus, come on, there's a crowd. A crowd means a lot of people. You just healed a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years. Stand up and take credit for it. Tell them who you are. Not Jesus. He tucks into the crowd and moves on. He knows what's in man. He did this miracle for the man to make a point with the religious leaders. That's what he's doing. But look at verse 14. It says, afterward. So Jesus heals the man, disappears, and then verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple 
and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus seeks this guy out later. This healing isn't just about his physical well-being, is it? He does heal him, but there's more at stake. Jesus singles him out of all the other multitude. The text doesn't necessarily tell us why, but Jesus does. He heals this man. He doesn't heal everyone. And yet, he's God, and he's good. This should tell us something. Jesus' goodness and his godness don't hinge on everyone getting physically healed. And Jesus doesn't want to seem to solve this problem. He has a greater purpose, and that's healing sin. Jesus says to this guy, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Whether this man's sin led him to being an invalid or not, we really don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But Jesus is calling him to holiness. This man's physical healing, this is what I want us to see, his physical healing isn't Jesus' end game. His aim was this man's holiness. He wasn't trying to make this man comfortable on his way to hell. He came back and sought him out to make the point that the the main issue was sin. And this is the pattern of Jesus. Yes, he healed people. Yes, he did miracles. But the point was always belief and holiness, turning from sin and trusting in Christ. If we want to be obedient, that should be our pattern too, as individuals and as a church. Not just feeding the homeless people or giving out Christmas trees. That's good. We should follow that with calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. He says, go and sin no more, so that something worse might not happen to you. The something worse here seems to be eternal judgment. Now, remember, he's talking to someone who just experienced 38 years of paralysis. Something worse than that? Yes, something worse. Eternity, separated from Christ, in hell, something worse. Jesus, again, is speaking to this man on a spiritual level. Without holiness, every single one of us will experience the something worse of eternal wrath and judgment. And let me be clear that apart from Christ, none of us are holy. But Jesus was holy. Every second of every day of every year of his life. And when we turn from our sin and trust in him, that holiness is placed on us. So understand this. The consequences of sin are eternal. If if we truly love people, we cannot ignore this truth. It doesn't matter if we cure their temporary ailments, if we don't introduce them to the great physician 
who can heal them forever. With the short time we have left, I want us to look at the responses. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is hardness of heart at its finest. Jesus has compassion on this man. He heals him after 38 years of suffering. And the man rejects him by going to the religious leaders. 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's not more information that people need. It's not seeing or even experiencing miracles that people need. It's new birth. And the same is true today. Unless Christ is drawing someone, no amount of flashiness in a Christian service, no amount of relevancy will do. The wind blows where it wills. Dead bones stay dead unless the Spirit awakens them. And this man responds in complacency and rejection. The Jews respond in persecution. Then Jesus says something remarkable in verse 17. He says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. You see what he's saying? First, he's saying that that God takes no days off. If you cut your hand, the scab doesn't wait until the Sabbath's over. God has compassion 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Second, Jesus is calling God his Father. And according to verse 18, this is what really upsets the Jews, ultimately leading to Jesus' death. See, they understood Jesus' claim to deity here. While they misunderstood many things about Jesus, they understood this clearly. Jesus wasn't claiming to just be a wise sage or just a good man who taught morality and lived a good life. He was claiming to be equal with God. Now, I hope that you're encouraged by the truth that Jesus sees you and knows you and is compassionate and gracious and merciful. I also hope that you're challenged by Jesus' actions in this text. He's powerful. He's gracious. He's God. Where might God be calling you to represent Christ's character in the many different places that he's placed you? Jesus is better than superstition and empty religion. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's holy. And he died to save sinners like you and me. Let's pray.